Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Toldot this morning. We're getting the story of Yitzchak, but we're not getting like the the a big part of his story, right? A big part of his story has already happened, yeah? And Vaera. So, um, so talk to me about about Isaac. What, what do we know about Isaac at this point? Does it really mean laughter? His name is definitely related to the word litzachek, to laugh. Um, what the original etymology of the patriarchal designation Yitzchak means, we don't know. What we know is our ancestors tell a story about why his name sounds like the word for laughter, right? And we get Sarah laughing when she's told, right, that she's going to have a child at her age. Um, so I have to tell you all, in our conversation about Sarah, you remember we talked about withered and then the word edna, pleasure, you know, over and against that. And we talked about, you know, what makes sense against withered is really, you know, wet and succulent and moist. And edna is about, it has a sexual connotation. So I wrote it on the board here. Edna, you know, wet, moist, sexual <laughs> pleasure. So Sunday when the kids come in for religious school, <laughs> I get an email on all of us get an email on Monday with a picture of the whiteboard <laughs> from Rabbi Carey and it says, because Sundays just can't get any weirder. <laughs> so I had to uh, say, um, true confessions. That was me. That was Torah study. And Rabbi Carey said, so I would love to listen to that podcast of your... Um, so please remind me as we study that some days I might want to erase the whiteboard before the children come in on Sunday. What's, what happens in Torah study stays in Torah study. <laughs> so we, the Akedah, Pamsa. So, so what do we know? So talk to me about what you know at Yitzchak, because that's all we know is he goes and then... Avram comes back. We're not even told Yitzchak comes back. So that's where a lot of the Midrashim start, that he was actually killed or, you know, whatever. So He's too compliant. Too compliant. He loves his father. He trusts his father. And he's just laying there. <laughs> just laying there. So he, there, we have no record of him fighting. We have no record of him arguing with his father. We've no, he even asks questions that have you know he's suspicious, right? You know, like, what, here's the wood and here's the fire. Where's the animal for sacrifice, right? Like, where's the offering, right? It, so he seems a little confused, and then it becomes clear at some point that it's going to be him. And there's no, we get nothing from Isaac, right, at that point. And he's got to be old enough to carry the wood. Do we know how old he was? We don't. There's a huge rabbinic controversy about how old he is, but he's old enough to carry the wood and walk by himself. Um, the best guess that I can remember is 14. You know, like he's old enough to have had to comply and get on the altar and agree to be bound, right? So there's so there's this disturbing this right? There's this disturbing element that I think Sarah's identifying of someone willing to comply with what clearly is a crazy, horrible right act that's gonna possibly looks like it's gonna be perpetrated against him by his father. So whether he complies with or let's imagine there is a struggle, right? And and somehow Abraham at 90-something wins that struggle. What, what happens in, in an incident like that? Well, from a psychological point of view, um, every man in here who's ever had a son knows that there is a change in the relationship the minute your teenage son could best you in a fair fight. <laughs> I mean, it, everything changes. The minute your daughter becomes more desirable, more beautiful than you. Well, that's not going to happen. I, <laughs> <laughs> there's a shift 
and he got home. So what I'm picturing here is that I don't think that he went willingly. And let's say he was 14, like the Midrash says. His father could still overpower him, but what it does is it changes you forever. He would have forever a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, which manifested when he had his twin sons, where we had a favorite and a non-favorite. So we see the family dysfunction from one more generation. So clearly we have a person who's been traumatized. There's just no way around the trauma that Isaac goes through. I was raised with that text being one about the faith of Abraham and the goodness of God who doesn't want that sacrifice when other neighboring gods, whether that's true or not, do. So I was raised with the goodness of that story. And the reality of that story is that it's horrifying what it means for the victim. What it means for Isaac is just, it has to be. Your father is ready to do it. His father was ready to do it. The angel had to call Abraham twice. Abraham was so wrapped up in, you know, wanting to fulfill what he heard as the command of God. So um, so I, I've always seen Isaac as a rather tragic figure that we just, we don't, he's kind of this nebisha, you know, like he doesn't, he's broken. He's, there's something that just, it was robbed, that he was robbed of something essential. And therefore, you know, we just don't have, we have a shadow um, of a person, um, so that's the impression you know we have. So there's there's a couple of theories. Uh, one is that we have a northern tradition uh, and we have a southern tradition. Abraham and Yaakov being kind of you know the north and the south in terms of who people trace their you know mythological origins to, and that Isaac is really sandwiched in there to become the the glue that connects them. So he's not really a patriot. He's not really somebody with a whole lot of stuff about him. He's just kind of grafted onto Avraham and Yaakov as a bridge. So he's made the son of one and the progenitor of the other so that the nation of Israel that's trying to come together as one entity has has a patriarchate that unites them. That's one theory. Another theory is that there is a lot of Isaac material that is lost to us. That there was just as much about Yitzchak as there was about Avraham and about Yaakov, but the folks who traced their, you know, connection back to this mythical patriarch lost power and influence early in the process of redacting these stories. You know, like even before the redaction, it was already they'd kind of burned out. That you know, those stories had kind of burned out, um, and that, that so that a lot of Isaac material is just lost. It's just gone. It didn't survive. It didn't get into here. So those are two explanations for why we have very little about Yitzhak. You could go with the first one that we talked about, which is it's a purposeful literary device to say that he was a shadow of a person. Right? There was very little there, uh, or not little there, but very little to say um, about him because he wasn't somebody who went out and, and made great changes or strides or innovations in the world. I want to close today, the, the, the trajectory of today, is to get to a slightly different read. Some people who, uh, Peter Pitsula and Rabbi Shavit Artsen, two writers who um, really t- try to appreciate Isaac. So we're, we're going to go there. That's where we're going to try to get to by the end of today. So I don't want to spend too long keeping us away from um, having a, a new way to look maybe at, at Isaac, which means we're going to move through uh, this material at the beginning of the triennial division uh, a little quicker. Okay? Agreed? Mm-hmm. All right. So somebody want to start at 25? We're starting at the beginning of the triennial division because we are in the first third of the readings again. This is the story of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took to wife Rebekah, daughter of Betul, the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord responded to his plea, and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children struggled in her womb, and she said, If so, why do I exist? 
She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord answered her, Two nations are in your womb, two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mightier than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first one emerged red, like a hairy mantle all over, so she named him Esau. Then his brother emerged, holding onto the heel of Esau, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Okay. So we have the story of Yitzchak, but we're picking it up after the Akedah. So clearly this is the, the story of Yitzchak and his, have, his having offspring, right? Like that, that's the part that matters, right? Is how he's going to be, uh, yeah, and about how he's going to be one of the patriarchs. You're not a patriarch if you don't have offspring. I mean, you can be the patriarch, but you're not the patriarch of a people if the people doesn't continue because you don't have children. Um, so this is the story of Yitzchak, and he is 40 years old when he takes to wife Rivka. We saw her story last year. Last year. <laughs> last week. In last week's Parsha, last Shabbat, we had uh, Rivka making the decision whether or not she's going to come, and Eliezer finding her, and all of that excitement. Um, she's barren. She has to be. All of the four yeah. mothers are barren. Right? That is a requirement for the, <laughs> the mythology. It's that they have to be barren because all of their conceptions have to be magic, magic magical miracles. miracles. Right? So, first Sarah is barren. Then she has a miracle child. Now Rivka is barren. And she has Isaac who pleads with God. So this is one of the places that one of our authors is going to point to say, look, Yitzhak affects the, the conception of his sons. Right? He goes to God, God to pray on behalf of his wife. That's unusual. Usually it's the woman. Usually we have a barren woman and she prays to God for a son. In this case, her husband prays for her, and God answers Yitzchak, and she conceives. But doesn't God talk to so, mm-hmm. yes, but in this case, it's not she who's going to ask for a child. Um, she could have been doing that every single afternoon. I don't know. But what we're told in this case is, at this particular moment, he he prays for her con- to conceive, and she conceives. It says God answered him, and she conceives. So he's not such a nebbish so <laughs> after all, right? So these are some of the ways that these authors are saying, wait a minute now. We have kind of all leapt to the conclusion that, that Yitzchak is nothing, but he, he loves his wife, and he fervently goes to pray on her behalf that she should conceive, um, and she does, and there are there's struggling in her womb. So she's got twins, and they are struggling in the womb. So, like, if you can imagine what that must feel like, um, I can't imagine it's anything pleasant. Um, and so she, she goes. Uh, what I love about this is that they're struggling in her womb. So clearly, she's in pain, and or she's concerned about the pregnancy because she goes to inquire of Adonai. Right? She's pregnant. What is she going to inquire? Right? Um, so, so, and we see before her inquiries, if so, why do I exist? But there's what, if so, what, if what, right? So in cases like this, the common understanding is that there was a physical gesture that would have been done at the moment, this moment of the, in the telling of the story. If this, why do I exist? You know, like, so that there's, you know, some kind of hand, some kind of hand or physical motion that would have gone along with the telling of the story, and they never f- fixed that when it became a written version rather than an oral version. Um, I'm puzzled by the second sentence here. We can just take one second. It says Isaac was the son of Abraham, mm-hmm. and then it says Abraham begot Isaac. Mm-hmm. Well, if he's the son of Abraham, then. Why does it need to say if Abraham begot Isaac? Right. We do see, we, it's rare that we see the reiteration like that, but we do see it in Chronicles um, that we have, because um, we have Yitzchak and Yishmael, and so like there's, you know, there's some, let's be very clear, you know, that Avraham begot Yitzchak, right? That we are talking about the descendant of, of, um, of Avraham. Uh, and. So um, my, my note says the redundancy is not a gloss, but a literary device for emphasizing Isaac's role as the sole successor to the patriarch in fulfillment of the promise in 21:12. Right. So it's 
it's is kind there of an implication here that he begot only Isaac? I don't think yeah. so. Because it's pretty clear that he, you know, that he. The, the, I think the big one of the big issues is it's to make it clear that Avimelech is not the father of Yitzchak. The king. The king, right? Sarah is abducted right. by a king before this and so there's a possibility in everybody's mind if she's been abducted and she's there for a week and a half it's very possible right that that the conception of Yitzchak was not in fact a miraculous conception you know with involving Avraham but was Avimelech or someone in his palace right so kind of a reiteration that it is Avraham who is the father of Yitzchak alright so I, I always love this verse, and she goes to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord answered her. Good. What does that mean? How does she go to inquire of Adonai? What, like, uh, God, are you home? Do you have a minute? Like, what, what does that mean? Some people want to say she goes to an oracle. You know, she, there's someone who, she goes to inquire. Means she goes to someone who's going to ask. On her behalf, so she goes to an oracle and receives this answer. We don't know; it's left out. But I just love it that Rivka goes to inquire of God. Like it's like just everyday, huh? Going out to the woods and discerning the answer. Okay. Susan. <laughs> so uninteresting. So um. <laughs> Um, right, so it's 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 so interesting that that Torah just is that clear about she goes to ask God and she gets her answer and boom here we go right so whether she turns within whether she goes to the woods it it seems that Rivka's pretty in touch with godliness right that with with whatever that is that you know that is is unusual I think you know to say so I'm very clear that I've asked God and here's the answer right and so I just love that that's. Right, and it's a very specific answer. Two nations are in your womb. Two separate people shall issue from your body. Right, this is the biblical. We see the way. Right, it's a couplet. Yes. Have you said that there's like this nuclear reactor aspect of Avimelech and how to do all these things before you can have contact? In Leviticus. Oh. So, the theology has changed by the book of Leviticus, right? Um, and even more so by the book of Deuteronomy. But in Genesis, God is way more anthropomorphized, mm-hmm. way closer to people's experience. Um, by the time we get Leviticus, yes, God is this nuclear force that has to be thank you, uh, mitigated or else you're going to get blamed, right? Pam? Um, it goes... It's in line with Rebecca's character to go right to God and get a response. Even I can't think of uh, any other woman in Torah that goes directly and gets a response from God. Can you and I remember? Yeah, I'd have to think about it. Um, you know, Hagar has. I mean, she Hagar doesn't go to ask. Hagar gets a direct right, conversation. She instigates it. And she instigates it. That's very much Rivka. Right. She's the instigator. Is yeah. definitely yeah. our Rivka. Yeah. Right. Um, that my daughter in her bat mitzvah speech called <laughs> a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that's a newer idea, she believes Rivka was a feminist. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> One people shall be mightier than the other. Okay, that's not something that, that would be surprising. The older shall serve the younger. So once again, we are getting the normal order, right, reversed. This is, it's so normative in the ancient world that it's weird that it's happening in Torah, but it's normal for Torah to overflip, I mean, to overturn that accepted world order in the ancient Near East. Um, Most of our stories, right, are about that, flipping the reality that's expected. She gives birth. And there were twins, and one comes out red. So this is where the Hebrew is is playing, right? We're, we're playing with what's happening with the name of the ancestor as well as the people who descend from him. Who descends from Esau? What is that nation called? Edom. 
What is Adom? Red. If you stand at a certain place on a nice hike in Israel and you look over across the river and you see Jordan, um, you see at some point in, in the vista, you see very red soil. That was ancient Edom. So it is the, like I grew up with Georgia red clay. Like you got that in your clothes and forget about it. Like it's done. Um, so that red is the soil of Edom. So that's hence the Edomites. Uh, and Asav is their progenitor. So to all of this stuff about emerging red, because he's going to have a name that's going to be about the Edomite, right? So that's, that's a lot of what's going on here in the Hebrew. Uh, he emerges um, ruddy. And some people say ruddy was a good thing. David is described as being ruddy. And he was like the sexiest, hottest you know, guy we have in the biblical uh, world. Samson was pretty hot too, yeah. but but David was, you know, smoking. So, um, and he was described as ruddy at one point. So it might be a really good thing. And something like a hairy mantle all over. So he's a very hairy guy. Uh, and then his brother emerges holding onto the heel of Asab. So they named him Yaakov. Right? From uh, Akev, heel. So he's holding on to the heel of his brother. Um, but it actually stems from the, the Semitic root uh, Akev, to protect. So you get a lot of these, how the elephant got its trunk, how Yitzchak got his name, how Yaakov got his name. It's because of the heel, when actually probably the original derivative is about the one who protected, meaning you know his people. Or may, you know, Yaakov El, may God protect, may have been the original uh, name. So, uh, and also then they play with the, the, uh, the word to supplant, right? That he, he's the, suppl- the usurper, the supplanter. Um, he's called a lot in our literature the trickster, but we'll see more about him later. So uh, we get the story about now uh, Esav being the skillful hunter. You want to read, Bert? Uh, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the outdoors. But Yaakov was a mild man who stayed in the camp. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah favored Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the open, famished. And Esau said to Jacob, give me some of that red stuff to gulp down for I am famished. famished, Which is why he was named Edom. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I am at the point of death, so what use is my birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob then gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank, and he rose and went away. Thus did Esau spurn the birthright. Okay. So we have two things that are going to happen between these guys. One of them is the birthright. Um, And, you know, very common in the ancient Near East, uh, that the firstborn was like in our tradition, even before our tradition, um, was sacred, right? Because it was the one that opened the womb, Peterechem. And so that is the case with Esav. Because he is that cultically designated son, um, he is understood to be the uh, primary guarantor of the future of the family line and hence of the preservation of the ancestral heritage. The firstborn naturally ranked second only to the head of the family, the patrofamilias, whose successor he would automatically become. Right? Um, but only the firstborn son. Yes. Yes. Correct. The hegemony of the older brother in the ancient world is widely attested. It is taken for granted, for example, in a Sumerian hymn to Enlil, extolling the fact that in the city of Nippur, the older brother honors the younger brother and acts humanely towards him. Uh, The right of the firstborn to a double share of the inheritance is documented at Mari and Nuzi in the Middle Assyrian laws as well as in biblical law. It was was across the ancient Near East, that this was understood. A double portion went to the firstborn, and he would become the patriarch. Um, So what's happening here is a struggle, right? So one boy is favored by the father, one by the mother, right? Um, We're not sure if if Isaac prefers Esau 
because Isaac likes the taste of game or that he likes it that Esau likes the taste of game? Right? Does, does he like it because his son can provide for him what he likes or does he like it that his son is a manly man which he, and likes that stuff? Which he isn't. Which Jacob isn't. Esau is. And Isaac, I mean, is, Isaac is not. That Isaac is not. We don't, we don't know um, about Isaac very much. Um, but in either case, one favors one, one favors the other. And so Aesop comes in from the hunt. He is famished and says to Yaakov, give me some of that red stuff for I'm famished, which is why he's called Edom. Mm-hmm. Nuts. Yes. Right? Like So again, we're going to get all these how the elephant got its trunk stories about their names. Yaakov said, first, sell me Bechoratecha, your right to the double portion, right? Your right to. <laughs> Laura's laughing already. It just sounds like a conversation right kids had last night. You said, no, if you give me this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? And he said, this is really care. Oh, my birthday, I'm hungry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, this, that is the rabbinic reading. Because we have to have Yaakov's actions be justified, don't we? If he's our patriarch. We are B'nai Yisrael. We are the descendants of Israel. So the rabbis are very wedded to the interpretation that you just gave, which is... Well, that depends. If the entire people are going to be subjected to a patriarch who doesn't even care for the, the birthright, Absolutely. someone who doesn't even want to live in the most vaunted halls of our country, right? So if you don't, if you don't even value that, what, what kind of a leader. leader are you? What kind of a patriarch? So Jacob, of course, is doing, and we know it's what God wants. And so, so, so the rabbis are very attached to that. Other folk are not so forgiving of Yaakov, right? And say that possibly Isaac is truly uh, Isaac. It's always hard at this part of the Torah for me to keep everybody clear. So, Asaf might actually be, let's say, hypoglycemic. Right? He's he's actually about to collapse. And he's like, I don't care about a flippin' right, just feed me. I'm like truly at the at the edge. And so that he he's so that Yaakov takes advantage of seeing how desperately close to he's dehydrated, he's whatever you know, and, and Yaakov takes advantage of Asad in that moment. How old Laura's kids are? How old are these kids? So they are older than Laura's kids. Okay, so yeah, what so would we think? Are they teens? Possibly. But but remember how close to adulthood that is. Yeah. Yeah. For them, that's that's when it starts to be decided what's going to be in this family is, you know, who can push who around or who can sneak around and you know take someone's wife or you know I mean like it, all that stuff happens now. On, on Jacob's part, like he's just waiting for an opportunity to say, "Give me your birthday." No, okay. He's not being nice. Who? Jacob. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he's, you know, the Hamish thing to do is say, oh, you're hungry, my brother. Here, have some stew. Doing the Hamish thing sometimes right. doesn't get you the patriarchy, right? <laughs> so, um, but Esau wasn't, from what I remember, um, really very nice to Jacob ever. We have no indication that he was not nice to Jacob. None. You did learn that in Hebrew school. What does that tell you? It tells me that. That was the point of view of the teacher. Right? That you have an impression from your childhood that, wait a minute, but Asaph was a brute. He was horrible to Jacob. We just read the entire story of the boys, by the way. We just read it, right? And it ain't there, right? But it goes back to the rabbis need Yaakov to be justified. And so all these midrashim about how Asaph, you know, was... Mean to Jacob. But this is also newer Humush than probably we used to. And, um, <laughs> right? So those commentaries are missing now. Um, but um, also, it's interesting that if you really read closely, I was reading, I don't know if it was in what I'm going to give you or something else. Um, it was. It's a really tragic story for Asaph. Yeah. If Asaph is a good guy, yeah. it doesn't say anything bad about Asaph in our text. Nothing. And he gets duped by Jacob twice. And still forgives him. Like all those years later, forgives him and offers to share land with him. And then Yaakov says, okay, you start, you go, and I'll catch up to you. Right? When they reunite. You go, I'll catch up to you. And Yaakov veers off and goes somewhere else. Right? And then we see them again as they bury their father together. And it's a peaceful, right? So Asaph really kind of gets the 
short end of the stick uh, in this story. Um, I want to I want to point out something interesting. At um, I'm at the point of death. Like he, he says, literally, I'm going to die. What is the birthright to me? I read a uh, there's a book I've shared with you before called Torah Queries, mm-hmm. a queer reading of Torah. And in the queer reading of Torah, it's that Asaph doesn't want to be the hunter. He doesn't want to be the manly man. That's what's expected of him to get his father's love and attention. And he hates it. And he's tortured about it. You know, think of a big strapping man who really has no desire to be macho, right? Who's tender and a poet and, right, wants to paint. You know, like, um, and so what he's saying here in a queer reading of Torah is, if I continue in this role, I'm going to die anyway. So why not just sell it to my brother? You know, like, because he seems to want it. And and even though Asaf might want it because he wants the status or his father's love and approval, he says, but I'm I'm going to die. Like, it's going to kill me. That, that makes Jacob even worse. Because if, I mean, if he wasn't, if, if, if Esau wasn't just hungry, but on the point of death, then Jacob is saying, oh, very interesting. Have your birthright for a little bit of food. And of course, Esau could have gone somewhere else to get food. Ostensibly, this wasn't the only food in wherever they were. In the house. Yes, that that was the queer reading. Was he's like, this will kill me. Living like this will kill me. But I would love to see the midrash that stays with a queer reading that Asaph doesn't want that he doesn't want this, and if it's killing him. Um, and the same way the rabbis have a fantasy about the conversation between Rachel and Leah when when Leah marries Jacob, right? Did they tie Rachel up and put her in a closet? Like, where, where's Rachel? We get, no, we get no word about where Rachel is as her sister is lying with her beloved, right? Before her. Um, and so the rabbis have all of this midrash about that Rachel is actually lying under the bed, <laughs> making all the noises so that he shouldn't know that it's not her in the bed. And right, so and this whole collusion between the sisters and this, yeah, I'm going to put that on the board. And it's Rachel lying under the bed, making all the noises. And let's see what Carrie writes me on Monday. Um, and so, th- so th- there's this fantasy in the Midrash. There's all these scenes that are fantasy of, of Rachel and Leah colluding to help Leah get what she needs and then knowing that Rachel will be married to him as well. Um, and so I, w- I would love to see that written here. The Midrash here of, of Yaakov and Asaph and Yaakov saying, like, I know you hate this, you know, and Asaph saying, it's killing me. And, you know, Yaakov saying, well, why do we have to do it the way everybody says we have to do it? Like, you know, I would love to be the CEO, right, of dad's company, right? So you should just do what you want, right? And so, I mean, I would love to see that midrash uh, written. I mean, notice there isn't one, I guess is what I'm saying. There is no midrash about they might have actually been working together. It's more... Going back to the sentence about the older, much of the mightier the other, the older should serve the younger. Esau is the older. Mm -hmm. Does that come into play here where... Yaakov is saying, you know, I've been born into being subservient, and my older brother is supposed to protect me and serve me. I don't like the role I'm in, and I can take advantage of Esau because I can really use my mind, not my body. I'm smarter than he is. That's clearly where the rabbis go. They go to that Yaakov is smarter, and Esau's just kind of this dumb, lumbering, you know, outside axe wielding flannel shirt wearing you know and that that's not who we needed as a patriarch we needed the guy who could trick the other guy out of it <laughs> like that's clearly who he who he is Barbara just one thing always think that I always think that, that God or religion is about things being fair and that my concept of what is fair but from the get go before it came to be it was decreed that it was not going to be fair so all these struggles are to all these interpretations are to try 
and make it be fair so that it would be okay for them. That's how I look at it. Yeah. Oh, this is all okay. Why would it be inverted this way? Why would a bad action, cheating your brother out of his birthright, be the beginning of a peepee? So, right. So, so clearly it is our modern or contemporary, I don't even know what terms you use for who we are now, post-contemporary, I don't know. It's our contemporary mindset that says fair is what this is supposed to be. That is not the case for the authors of this text. For the authors of this text, life was chaos. Life was had order, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and that order's overturned, and that is terrifying. That's why the order was put in place, so brothers didn't kill each other, right? So it's, it had to be super clear. Otherwise, you had chaos in families. Um, so to, to take that and flip it is a statement about you know our ancestors playing with fire. And so it's it, to get to fair is not the point in in these texts. So it, then it's then it's interesting to look at it from their perspective. Well, what was their point in these texts, right? And um, is the point that power, actual power, usually wins? Jacob, you sort of think that the strength, physical strength, would be the power, but it's reversed. So then the question, I might rephrase the question, is the point, what really is power? Yeah, what is power? Right? What what renders one powerful or successful? Or And I think for sure we have a tradition that says being wily and clever, you know, is certainly how a lot of stuff gets done by our ancestors, right? Sarah you know, gives Avraham Hagar, you know, then she gets rid of Hagar when she has eyes, you know, and she listens at the door of the tent to the, uh, they, they work within the system the way they can, right, to, yeah, to manipulate sort of things. The setup is, is Yaakov is, is actually quirky, which you normally associate with a feminine sort of, you know, subservient type of role, and yet here he is, the guy that's going to wind up being... In charge. Yeah. Right. Sarah, you'd wanted to say something. I just wanted to say that when you spoke about uh, Rachel and Leah cooperating with each other uh, for the guy, uh, that's a lot more um, acceptable even now than two men doing that with each other. Interesting. That that there's already a gender bias built in uh, that for men to cooperate... Is seen somehow in that way would have been seen as weak, right? You know that it has to be that one took it from the other, right? I think that's very true. That there's definitely still then for sure, but still later there's a a real gender bias culturally uh, that we still live with, um, which is why the David and Jonathan story is so beloved by um, the queer community, right? Because it's an example of they loved each other so much that they wouldn't let the king, Jonathan's father, come between them. I, I've heard this myth about twins, identical twins, that the one who comes out first comes out first because the one who was really first said, you go, like being very polite. <laughs> <laughs> My husband's an identical twin, so we always hear these stories. But, but I've heard that about Jacob, too, that he actually would have been first, but he was being very polite and gentle. And said, Asav, you go first. So, of course, that would be a rabbinic spin, because that, that would be very good to have Yaakov had been so gracious. They're not identical twins. They can't be because Asav is hairy and red and Yaakov is smooth, right? And, and that's very clear in the next episode where he steals from his brother that they're very different physically. So um, so they're fraternal twins, uh, it would seem. <laughs> wait, wait, I didn't tell you you could go. Isn't there also a dimension of this looking back from a later point of trying to explain why certain tribes and countries are certain ways. Uh, that for part sh- of this is a projection back yes, of 100%. why is this that way today. 100%. Well, because the... Yes, so we can't ever forget that we're not talking just about characters. We're talking about ancestors of peoples. So a lot of the stories between the ancestors of the peoples reflects a historical reality between those peoples that happened at one time. It's how they date some of these texts, right? If Jacob and, and Asaph are not enemies, they don't end as enemies, it reflects a period in Israel's history where they were neighbors to the Edomites and they were allies. Or there was a warm peace, like between Israel and Jordan. 
right? That that this story was written at a time where Edom was not an enemy of Israel. There are times where Edom is an enemy of Israel, right? And so that's one of the ways they date these texts is we know this isn't about two guys who lived mm-hmm. 3,000 years ago. We all know this is a text written by the descendant, mm-hmm. the people who call themselves as defendant, defendants, mm-hmm. the descendants of Jacob, right? Talking about the descendants of Edom, right? And because it isn't terrible, maybe Israel had a had a nice end of the deal, right? In a in a nice economic arrangement with Edom, right? Which is reflected here, and that they get they kind of steal the birthright from Edom, but they're not at war. Esau and Jacob, you know, Esau's angry and ready to kill him, um, but they they reunite. And um, okay, so to go to twenty six. There was a famine in the land aside from the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord had appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I point out to you. Reside in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I will assign all these lands to you and to your heirs, fulfilling the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. Uh, I will make your heirs as numerous as the stars of heaven and assign to your heirs all these lands so that all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your heirs, inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me and kept my, my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my teachings. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. When some time had passed, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, took uh, looking out of the window, saw Isaac fondling his wife, Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, so she, is, so she is your wife. Why then did you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Abimelech said, what have you done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. Abimelech then charged all the people, saying, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall be put to death. Okay. So this happened twice to Sarah. Mm-hmm. So part of the wife-sister narratives, there's a long history of wife-sister narratives uh, in our tradition. Um, but, but part of why they're here is to point to the absolutely ravishing beauty of the matriarch. The men have to be right? Successful in certain ways. Women have to be barren and have to have a a miraculous conception. But before that, they have to be beautiful. They must be so beautiful that Yitzchak is afraid the men of the town are going to kill him to get him out of the way because they are all so interested in Rivka. So it happens twice to Sarah. It is a very important part of the heritage of the matriarchal narratives that they be that beautiful that it endangers the life of their husband. But that's not a nice thing to do to his wife. <laughs> so there's a lot more to discuss around Avraham than around... She's not abducted. Rivka's not abducted, right? We don't have the same level uh, of threat as we do in the Sarah narratives. Um, what we know is that, that that he just says she's my sister because he just wants to like fly under the radar, um, even though it's still... Maybe you could say not the nicest thing to do is to say I'm going to make sure that like I'm protected, but she looks like she's fair game. Um, so, but this is one of those places that helps us explicate the text about what happens between Yitzchak and Yishmael. Remember, Yitzchak, Sarah sees Yitzchak and Yishmael misacheking. Right. This is the this is the reason we have a possible sexual interpretation of that because how is it that Abimelech knows they are not brother and sister? He catches them misacheking, right? So we get the English fondling, but I but it's so misleading because fondling because it, it's clearly a sexual encounter here. But if they just left it at playing, then we can go back and read the other episode in Genesis and go. They were playing. What is it? Right? You miss. You miss that it's the same word. And I'm not saying it's wrong to say fondling, but but it it helps you not understand the murkiness of what that term is, because they go ahead and identify it as sexual play. Yes, um, which it clearly is here. 
but but that's one of the reasons we can go back and look at the other te- texts. They were misahaking, possibly, right? It's implying sexual abuse of of Yitzchak by Yishmael, right? Or they're having a homoerotic affair. In either case, you can understand why Sarah said, "This has got to stop." Okay. So let's go on. Twelve. Uh, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped a hundredfold the same year. The Lord blessed him, and the man grew richer and richer until he was very wealthy. He acquired flocks and herds and a large household, so that the Philistines envied him. And the Philistines uh, stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with earth. And Avimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you have become far too big for us. Go ahead. Old story. That's my comment. Uh, uh, never mind. Yeah, go, yeah, go on. Okay. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the wadi of Gerar, where he said, Isaac dug anew the wells which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, in which the Philistine had stopped up after Abraham's death, and he gave them the same names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants, digging in the wadi, found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. He named that well Isaac because they contended with him. And when they dug another well, they disputed over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug yet another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth, saying, Now at last the Lord has granted us ample space to increase in the land. Okay. So Yitzchak becomes exceedingly wealthy. So Abraham was wealthy. So he started with, right, a good deal and then becomes on his own because of his work and attention and whatever he becomes and God's blessing, of course, he becomes uh, numerous and very, very wealthy. So this is not, I mean, in some ways we get that, what power comes with wealth, but but you really have to think of a desert sheikh, right? It, it's It's not just a wealthy person. Who has a great business? Right. This, this is a sheikh. He has enough people. Right. Wealth is not just money in the ancient world. It's people. It's he. It's following. He's got enough people following material power that he starts to become a threat to the locals. He's that powerful a sheikh that he starts to become a problem for the folks in the region. So what do they do? They stop up the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of his father's his father Abraham, filling them with earth. And Avimelech says to Yitzchak, "Go away from us, for you have become far too big for us to like want you around." So he's not in territory that that his family comes from. He has no relatives other than right Abraham's people. Um, which aren't many, right? It was Sarai and Lavan, right? I mean, Lot. So there, there are not many of Abraham's, but Abraham's got a big following, right, as well. Now, Yitzchak's got that, but they are not native. They don't have the attachments, right? So they can be kicked out. Now, they could go to war. They could fight, right? But that's a serious risk that we're going to see Yaakov has to deal with. But didn't God tell him to stay there? Uh, so, well, no, because it turns out he leaves. Um that he's going to be he's going to be expelled um, and and is going to leave huh he's willingly yes right. right so he moves his family right um, beyond the limits of gerar as a result where, where of this gerar is it south of beersheba um, it's it's got to be somewhere near beersheba where's where's my big map that i bought in Israel? oh my gosh <laughs> there you go so right it's all kind of in the same Right region. South. Yeah, south. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That it's it's we call it the deep south, but it's actually Beersheba actually is the geographical middle of Israel. Oh, wow. Think about that. When we think Beersheba, we think away oh, south. South. It is geographically the center of Israel. Well, south of Jerusalem. So, but but the reason it's thought of as south is because from there down it's uninhabitable. So, yeah. It's that whole, you know, part of Israel that's 
that's desert, that's uninhabitable. So, um, so when I was living in Beersheba, you know, that's where I studied in Israel for a year. I was at Ben Gurion University um, as a graduate student, as part of rabbinical school. And you know, they used to say, "Oh, you're all the way down south." I'm like, "I am the geographical center of Israel. Y'all are north." Let's be clear. Rabbi, there is an expression from Dan to Beersheba, meaning from the north to the south. In that sense, Beersheba is the end. Right. So it's kind of the south of where people live, and can really make a living. But most people live, you know, in a very small strip of Israel because that's what's yeah. habitable. That's what's doable. All right. So so we're talking about Beersheba. We're talking about that region. What is critically important to life for semi-nomadic pastoralists in Beersheba? Water. We are not talking a small thing. Water is the engine that drives the economy in this region. It still is. Still. Exactly. Right? Israel is world-renowned for its dealings with water they are capturing something ridiculous like 96% of groundwater you water that's runoff they're capturing a lo- most of the water now in Israel and there some will some scientists in Israel will tell you there's not a water problem in Israel anymore right that it they have solved the issue by desalination by drip agriculture you know by um by capturing groundwater, by reusing gray water, you know, that, that is like, it's not really the big issue. It's a challenge and it's going to remain a challenge and it's going to remain an expense, but, but they're not worried about, you know, subsistence now based on the issue of water because it's been so critical. Israel knew it had to address that head on uh, right away. So, so when it says the wells were stopped up by the Philistines, this means the economy ground to a halt for Isaac and his people, Right? Unless you want to fight, and you can presume they didn't just fill them up and walk away. Like presumably they stopped them up and, you know, you want to argue about it, right? So they're they're they can't feed their flocks, they can't water their flocks, they can't they don't have water for cooking, and probably what do we just hear? There was a famine. So what has to happen for semi-nomadic pastoralists if there's a famine? You have to settle down and do temporary small-scale agriculture to survive. Right? Enough. You have to grow enough food that you and your, you know, folk can survive. So, what is critical to that? Water. Yeah. All right. So, stopping up the wells, he goes back. We're told, right? And later, redigs the wells of his father and gives them the same names. Yeah. Isaac dug anew the wells which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham and which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham's death and he gave them the same names that his father had given them. Then his servants dig some other wells and those are contested until they get to a place where at Rehovot now the land is wide enough for us to increase and they have water and it's all groovy. What does Rehovot mean? Wide. That's not the I think I, I don't know if it, but it's north. Yeah. There's a comment in this uh, in the Eighth Chaim that says one commentator understands that the Philistines stopping up the wells was symbolic, not physical. They tried to block the dissemination of Abraham's ideas about God and human behavior. All right. So we're, we're, that's where we're going. Oh. Right. That's where we're going. Because um, that, that's clearly. It's not about what. What? That's clearly a much later gloss. Oh yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, yes. I just was happened to be reading about this, and it was an interesting take that I said twice was it says settle. He was really making a land grab as well as a water grab, and settling there and planting crops, and the people didn't like it, and till finally the used the word he moved, presumably he's now in tents and in a wide open space. And that directly after is when he gets his blessing that he's going that God's gonna make him a great people. So it, you know, when he sees it's it's in God's hands and he wasn't trying to make it happen. The good things happen. So he turns it over and doesn't he fight. Turns it over. Okay. It wasn't a well, and you could also use that to argue, unlike his father who fought we forget that about Abraham but he fought the five kings he fought you know when Lot was taken and um, you know Abraham was willing to fight and here we get Isaac okay you know you don't like us we'll move 
right? It, it could be another look at the Nebuchadnezzar Isaac who's not willing, right, to to do what it's going to take to stay, right? So. So, right, so that is an argument. His wife. His wife. So, yeah, Rebecca doesn't take no for an answer. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right, so go to page, go to page 149. I gave you a lot, I know, but um, you can read it on your own. I just think a lot of it was interesting, so I gave it to you. We're not going to do that much of it. Um, 149. This is a, from a book called Our Father's Wells. Uh, by Peter Pizzola, uh, who's known for his bibliodrama, his work in bibliodrama. But he's also a, a wonderful writer who explores the relationship between men, between like him and his father. You know, him and his son, he, he's interested in the relationship and the dynamics between fathers and sons and brothers. And, you know, so it's very much, he's looking at stories of the patriarchy, not the way we usually do, which is kind of with a critical, often it's me looking at that with a critical eye, right? Um, but he's looking at it meaning patriarchy, meaning that system of men being in relationship to each other and what the dynamics of that are and how it speaks to us today. Is that what bibliodrama is? No, bibliodrama is we would take uh, two verses and we would stand up and we would assign roles and we would have it acted out. But you would speak all the – and then, then people have feel free to ask, so Isaac, why are you why are you do why are you unstopping that well? Why not go somewhere – right, and so – then Isaac has to answer out of really becoming that character. Uh, and, and it's a fascinating way to open up Torah. Because what looks like a simple three line, as we well know from yapping about it, like a simple three lines, if you start to unpack it, can be very intense. You, you, we had Peter Pitzela come to Duluth and he, he took the line and Isaac grew up and was weaned and Abraham threw a feast for his son Isaac. That was that was the sentence, and it took us two hours, right, to explore. Because then you start asking questions: Where's Sarah? Right, Isaac's being taken from. He's being weaned now. He's being taken to the party where he will now live with the men. So how is that for you, Isaac? Right, he's saying, "Mommy, mommy, mommy, where's mommy?" Right, uh, and Aesop going, "Wait a minute, what?" So anyway, um. It's a very interesting. Well, Asaph wouldn't have been there. It would have been Ishmael, right? Saying, "Wait a minute, like he's coming here, right?" So you assign all those roles, so that that one line of Torah. But you've got all the characters at the feast, right? And what's it like for Sarah to turn over her? So you say to Sarah, "What's that like? You're giving him over now to the man." You know, like so. Anyway, it's just it's a no, it's a way of breaking open Torah. <laughs> what? What'd she say? No, no I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> All right. One, four, nine. <laughs> We're going down to the, the paragraph that begins, Isaac is the son. Isaac is the son who returns and repairs the work of the father. In so many ways, a figure akin to Jesus, Isaac could have said, as Jesus said of himself, I am about my father's business. Our individualistic culture, our frontier mentality, mentality, which pushes always into the new, leaving old ways and old countries behind, is at a loss to know how to deal with this renovative work of Isaac. Yet in this age, which begins to respect the need for conservation, Isaac's spirit may speak to our condition. So this goes back to my earlier point that I'm, it's easy to write Isaac off. Because we tend to be like, we want Avraham, you know, the bombastic, you know, Avraham who sets out anew and leaves everything he knows, the adventurer, right? Or Yaakov, who also, he's the trickster, he's going to steal, he's going to trick, he's going to lie, he's going to get caught, he's got to run, right? That's the stuff we like. We've seen too many movies. <laughs> right? I don't know that we've seen too many movies. Yes, but I think also it's because we're a culture. Why do we go see that movie? We like that movie. We like the one where it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, we, the guy like goes and read, he renovates. Like, it really does show what is, not what you'd like it to be. That's, and I think that's exactly part of valuing Yitzchak is, is, we get it now that, that there's been such a huge cost to that mentality of adventuring and the consumption that comes with it that we're starting to get it that conservation is the only thing that's going to save humanity from itself. It's that 
dire at this point. Conservation is becoming like, Yitzhak doesn't look so nebuchadnezzar if he's going to solve global warming, right? Like, so, um, so turn your paper over to 150. It's talking about he, him redigging, right? The, the wells. And Peter Pitzula says the prefix re might stand as the key motif of Isaac's life. It is not his whole story, but it is the core. Re, as in back again, is the prefix of return, recollection, and repair. It is not that Isaac is a lesser man than his father, only that the quality of his contribution is less dramatic or innovative. Further, Abraham is great because he is fired into his destiny by a force apparently external to him. Isaac is moved from within. No one bids him undertake this work of repair. It is in his heart to do it. And without him, the wells of Abraham would have remained stopped up. Bert, here's to your point that you are lifting up. Without him, the stories of Abraham, the legacy of Abraham would have passed into oblivion. Isaac is the man who preserves the past, carries it into the present, and passes it on to a future. He is the middleman, the inheritor, whose relation to the past is full of respect. Um, we read this at our senior staff meeting as our we give we study a piece of Torah before our meeting every week and we talked a lot about this one that this is the work we do here and it's easy to undervalue like if we're not totally innovating in the big flashy synagogue and the big you know it's, like, it's very easy to undervalue that but really what is he doing he takes the past he preserves and conserves and alters it for the situation in the present and therefore has what to hand on to the future and. Without something to hand on, there isn't a future related to the past. There's something else, and I'm not saying that's not fine, but we obviously are the descendants of Isaac also because we don't believe our kids should start over or start something new, a new religion, a new tradition. Right? We believe there's a value to bringing the past into the present, tending it here, changing it here, reconstructing it here, and handing that on for them preserve and conserve and reconstruct and change and and pass on to the future so it's um it, it, it was a mm, lovely corrective let's look at one uh sorry look at 152 uh he 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 takes that what we just talked about like taking it forward he says he passes the song line forward of Avraham which is what you were talking about Bert in that commentary his story he takes Avraham's story the song line which is a, a term from Australia Aboriginal Australia um, Isaac makes the song line pass to the next um, generation and song is about you know story is about words so that you can read that at home all that in between stuff so we get to hear patriarchy the, the on 152 the paragraph patriarchy Patriarchy reminds us that as human beings engaged in the labors of vocation, we place our first and final faith in words. It is not language that separates us from animals, but the agreements we make about language, the trust we place in words, and the trust words make possible. The sanctifying of a language of faith and a faith in language is the deep agenda of the patriarchal tradition. In that tradition, Isaac takes his place as one who keeps the words of the father alive. Isaac finds water, makes a well, and gives it the name Oath, both to mark the place of these pacts and declarations and to hallow oath-making itself as a supreme use of language. Words have the ability to bind us to our commitments, to create history. Right? It's like, I don't need to say anymore. I mean, just sit with that for a while, right, this afternoon. Just sit, sit with that this Shabbat. Uh, drop down to the end of the page. No one more than Isaac appears merely to succeed a father. Right, That's how it appears, right? Yet, in a subtle way, Isaac ex- exceeds him. Abraham lived in a present, constantly opening into the future. Abraham was called to go where no one before him in his tribe or tradition had gone. Captain Kirk. <laughs> Isaac, by contrast, remains in Canaan. Alone of the patriarchs, he goes neither down to Egypt nor back to Haran. God bids him stay. However, in staying, Isaac does what Avraham never does. The very act of living in his father's shadow, preserving and deepening his father's legacy, 
requires what we colloquially call staying power. And this power is another dimension of the father power of patriarchy. So again, something that we tend to overlook is that he wasn't bombastic like Avraham, that's true, but he does what Avraham and Yaakov never do. He stays. The power of staying, the power of tending, the power of building, the power of right of being and including in his father's shadow. So this is, we'll close with Isaac, the who freshens his father's inspirations. Yeah, Isaac, who freshens his father's inspirations, restores the old names and extends the song line, undertakes the poet's work. No one knows better than the poet the indispensable value of the past as words, their associations and histories. Every poet must do as Isaac has done. Redig the wells. Get back into the heart of the words where imagination, and he capitalizes imagination, where imagination kindles meaning and inspires a world. Language itself is the poet's water. The well, its forms. The poet rarely invents new words. Isaac the poet takes the old words and uses them afresh so that in his generation they live and flow and carry renewed vitality. He enacts in modest ways the primal creative process of mystery who creates a world by words. Referencing Genesis. So may we, may we draw on the stories and the words of the past. May we continue to do so in a way that waters and feeds those in the present and builds um, a rich Uh, a rich and deep future. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.